now. Do I have your full attention? Screw you. Hello to Yogi. Hello to Boo Boo. Hello to Scooby Doo. Barney and Bradley. Don't forget your goat leggings. Well, par me all over the place. There's always magic at the movies. What's in the basket? Um, I posted about this on the Instagram, but I went to California Adventure for the first time since, like, I don't know, I was probably like 13 years old. And we got in line for one of the flagship rides in the park which is a cars themed ride <laughs> called radiator springs racers and very ambitious ride it, it's over i think something like six acres there's a, a racing component between the car that you're in and the car next to you there are dark ride sequences where you beat the characters from cars the animatronics are incredibly detailed really a very very impressive ride it feels extremely fast even though the speed is not you know know anything off the charts but anyway the line was two hours long we were in line for two hours and um it's too long you're you're standing in line the line is kind of supposed to be like radiator springs in like 1909 or whatever and as as you're standing in line you kind of wind your way forward they have a playlist it's a lot of early country and uh, western swing music and i took particular issue with one of the songs which is a song by bob wills and his texas playboys i think it's called roly poly but it's a song about a fat little kid the one that doris was singing just like that yeah and it's got this whole bit about daddy's little fatty because, like, he's a roly-poly, daddy's a little fatty, he's going to be a man someday, I think is the lyric. And so while I was in line for two hours, I think I heard that song, like, six times. It was a nightmare, actually, and uh, the ride was extremely good. He can eat an apple pie and never even bat an eye. He likes everything from soup to hay. Roly-poly, daddy's a little fatty. Betty's gonna be a man someday. Welcome to the podcast, What's in the Basket, where we talk about old movies. My name is Candice, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia. Hello. And Tiffany. Hello. And speaking of Tiffany, we have a movie today written by a man named Tiffany. Well, he didn't write the movie, <laughs> but he wrote the book that the movie's based on. We have a, we have a double header today. We are going to be covering two movies from the 1930s that involve astrology and death, kind of, maybe? Joey Brown movies make me wish I was dead. Uh, <laughs> 13 Women from 1932, starring Myrtle Loy and Irene Dunn. And then When's Your Birthday from 1937, starring Joey E. Brown and Marion Marsh. This is just like two totally different interpretations of astrology. Also, just like a whole lot of fucking racism in both. So, yeah, we're in for a wild ride. 13 Women is a pre-code film, 1932, based on a novel by the author Tiffany Thayer, who, as we've established, was a man. 
Uh, weirdly enough, Tiffany was a pretty common male name for a while there, which is... It's hard to fathom. Actually, it only became a popular female name uh, with the birth of Tiffany from What's in the Basket in the year 1992. She was the first female Tiffany ever. The first Tiffany but yeah, it is strange. It is strange that that's his name, but also he had many of his novels turned into films, from what I believe. So the one that was coming to mind for me was uh, Call Her Savage, the Clara Bow talkie, where she is part Native American and is referred to as a half-breed. And uh, this movie, 13 Women, also has a lot of quote-unquote half-breed content, so that seems to be a running theme with Tiffany Thayer. Yeah, what's... What's the deal with that? I'm going to guess the fact that they're both like sexy, alluring, dangerous women. I'm going to guess this is some some fetishy shit. Yeah, I, I would I would suspect so as well. This is a Selznick movie from 1932 and it's directed by Georges Auchambault. That's my attempt to pronounce a French word, who directed not really, I think, a lot of notable movies per se. Uh, he directed a couple of Joel pre-codes, a couple of Joel McRae pre-codes. I know that. Um, of course. And he also directed a movie from 1926 called Puppets, which does, in oh, fact, Jesus involve Christ. a marionette theater. So that's one thing, you know, uh, very important, I think, for people to know. There's not really, yeah, I don't know, Nightwork, 1939, with Mary Boland. Uh, no, it's mostly just Joel movies and puppets. And a couple of Corinne Griffith movies. Okay. All right. You know, I, I like Corinne Griffith. So that's, you know, that's good. That's good for him. Okay. Well, I guess we should start with just the, the general plot. First off the bat, the film is called 13 Women, and there are simply just not 13 women in it. I mean, I guess they were trying to keep it brief. But um, the original release was 73 minutes, and then they cut, what, 14 minutes out of it? So it's only an hour long. So it's like they had a bit of time to add a couple more women in there. You know, I'm trying, I'm counting right now, and I'm only counting 11 women. I got, okay, Irene Dunn, Jill Esmond, Myrna Loy, Mary Duncan, Kay Johnson, that's five. Florence Eldridge, Peg Entwistle, Harriet Hagman, Phyllis Fraser, and Betty Furness, that's 10. Who are the other two women? Because that includes Phyllis Fraser and Betty Furness, whose scenes were cut. So it's like, that even doesn't even make sense. I have so many problems with this. Look, Selznick was just like, make it make sense. And he did. So um, it's essentially, it's a, re a revenge female ensemble film. Sorority sisters are involved. And it opens with, they both open with horoscopes being read. And all of these sort of upper-class women receive these horoscopes that foretell their doom or misery, and some of them are really into it and believe it, some of them are not. And it turns out they're being sent by Myrna Loy, who looks like she's in the wings waiting to go on stage in a performance of Swan Lake, who it turns out was a mixed race student who was outcast from their school because of her heritage by these women. And she's taking revenge on them one by one for that, which I think is totally justified. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm on her side. I'm definitely on her side. She is obviously referred to as an by a number of slurs throughout the film. We want this woman. Her name's Ursula Georgie, half-breed type. Half Hindu, half Japanese, I don't know. And also, she's doing some level of brown face. Yeah, and she's got the eyes taped and everything too. Or at least, you know, the, there's makeup alluding to There's definitely monoliths. makeup happening. Uh, it's, a it's a lot to be going on with. 
But yeah, it, it telegraphs the way you think it would. It's been called like a proto-slasher in that it has a lot of influence on where slasher would end up when it finally became a genre on its own. There's a predestination element here, not only explicitly in the whole context of the women receiving their horoscopes, like you said, foretelling their doom, but also the idea that their behavior as teenagers will now define the course uh, of their lives. And um, it's like a racist Final Destination. Like, if I had to explain this movie to somebody, it would be like Final Destination. <laughs> but a, it's like a slasher Final Destination about racism. And it's very compelling. It's a very compelling film, I think. Unfortunately, Ricardo Cortez is in this, too. And to a lesser extent, Irene Dunn. Uh-oh, we're going to get in trouble with that one. The other thing in this is that Irene Dunn's character, who is one of the sorority sisters, um, has a son. And Myrtleloy is hellbent on killing the son through a, a number of, I'm going to say, wily coyote-esque <laughs> yeah. plans. Uh, one by, you know, taining candy and the other's like making an explosive rubber ball with TNT she just purchased from the hardware store, which I think was apparently a thing you could do back then, just casual TNT. And also throughout all of this, the original place where the horoscopes was coming from um was coming from the clairvoyant the swami and um he well foretold that she was going to die on a train it is death i read for you aren't we all to die but you not pleasantly oh the thought is too horrible your body mangled like that how an accident the stars say the railroad, perhaps. How strange. So are you to die like that. Which is a self-fulfilling prophecy in the end, because she does. Spoiler alert, everyone but Irene Dunn and Ricardo Cortez, unfortunately, ends up dead. Oh, and the baby, the kid, the kid lives, I guess, the three of them, and they form a beautiful blended family and honestly ricardo cortez he is a police sergeant in this definitely not taking his job very seriously it's a very light-hearted approach yeah a lot of laughter um a lot of slurs definitely was more serious about being a postal inspector it's a lot of joking too like the women will get like letters that say like unfortunately you know your sagittarius is in your ninth house and it means that you're gonna stab your husband to death and then the woman stabs her husband to death, and then he'll be like, well, I guess, I guess that one's a little weird. <laughs> like, Ricardo, <laughs> something's happening here. Something beyond any of our... That's the other problem I have with this movie, is that the scenes are shot in a way that definitely seems to imply that Myrna can control people with her mind. Like, she has, like, real, like, psychokinetic powers. And yep. that I have a slight issue with, because I totally understand the idea of her influencing people into making these decisions. But the fact that she makes sheer eye contact with people and then, like, collapse onto, like, you know, the train tracks and then are run over is a little too much for me. And also, she just has this incredible disdain for absolutely everybody around her. Relatable. How I used to envy you girls. Your parties, your sororities. You're lucky you don't belong you ask me because of those timetables laid out by the stars you were talking about you straight thinking oh so rational anglo-saxons don't believe in such things do you 
Yeah, the movie has an excellent supporting cast. It is a, it's a, it's quite a mixed bag. I mean, we've made our thoughts clear on Irene Dahn and Ricardo Cortez to a certain extent, but um, I think we can move through the list. And... The girls from school are, are really, I think, uh, diverse, not in like an ethnic sense because they're all white ladies, but uh, an interesting kind of cross-section of Hollywood history at this point in time. We've got Jill Esmond, who at the time was Mrs. Lawrence or Olivier, Mary Duncan. Another friend of the podcast. Another friend of the podcast, yeah, uh, Mary Duncan, whom I, I really like, uh, the movie she made with Charlie Farrell, the Murnau movie City Girl from 1930 is one of my one of my favorite movies of all time. You have Kay Johnson, who also has a big hit in 1930. Not big hit, I don't think at the time, but it has become a much beloved, admired pre-code. She's in Madame Satan, the DeMille movie about, uh, you know, the dirigible, the kind of like weird sex party going on inside of it, you know, and then she's like, she's got this alter ego, Madame Satan. Anyway, weird movie. Uh, she's in that. We've got Florence Eldridge in the cast, who was married to Frederick March, another friend of the podcast. We've got a couple people who aren't even in the movie because their scenes are cut. There is Leon Ames, who is Judy Garland's father in Meet Me in St. Louis his scenes are cut. Phyllis Fraser, who was Ginger Rogers' cousin, her scenes are cut. And then uh, Benny Furness, her scenes are also cut. And she would later on uh, go on to become more of a, I guess, a, a cultural figure than a, a film figure. Uh, she ended up becoming involved in a lot of like consumer protection, consumer lobbying kind of stuff later in life. But that's kind of where we reach the crux of the <laughs> of this movie's problem, is that it was edited and huge, enormous chunks of it were taken out so that of the 13 women, two of them don't appear anywhere on screen. So the whole, like, roundness of the 12 uh, Zodiac, 12 signs of the Zodiac kind of recedes there. It's not really played into as much as it could have been. I mean, I feel like Selznick could have just been sitting there being like, 13 women, that's just too many women <laughs> to be having any. I do think it's really weird, though, that Jill Esmond is in this. And then Jill Esmond ends up being jilted by Olivier for a unknown to Americans British actress I in a Selznick movie that is kind of strange I guess truth is stranger than fiction in Hollywood you know kind of foreshadowing Vivian Lee's ascendance but I, I don't know I, this is a really interesting cast I, Mary Duncan was I think in terms of at least in Fox terms a fairly sizable star in the early 30s and she's in this movie for like what five minutes before she's dead I guess the film is notable now because it's the only film appearance of Peg Entwistle. I've been taking a motor trip with a friend, and when I saw you were here, I simply had to come in and say hello. That's well. Peg Entwistle was made famous, sadly, by her own suicide after she jumped to her death from the Hollywood sign in 1932. Um, and this film was released posthumously. And she had a much larger role, but it was cut down. So she's only on screen for like four minutes. I guess the notoriety of her death has quite the legacy. I wrote an essay about her when I was in the seventh grade. Very hip with weird kids. Don't they say that her ghost haunts uh, the Hollywood sign? Just, just like every other ghost that and you know what's interesting is i did read at one point that there was a supposition that there might have also been like a prior death for the hollywood sign that isn't confirmed you know another jumper which i think is interesting i keep saying the word interesting it's better than saying that's sad like you normally do that's sad she jumped off the hollywood sign and that's all anyone remembers her for and that's sad uh, you know it's also sad somebody else is in this 
the actor who plays Irene Dunn's chauffeur, who then is involved in Myrna Loy's plot to kill Irene Dunn's son by giving the kid a rubber ball full of dynamite, which <laughs> we'll get to in a second. Apparently, his, his name is Edward Polly. I don't know. I don't care. Whatever. Fuck it. But according to his Wikipedia page, because that's the level of research that we do in bonus episodes, he became disenchanted with Hollywood because of the communist infiltration of the 1930s and decided Pussy. to look elsewhere. I know. What a fucking bitch ass ugly man. I when I when he first came on screen and I saw his face, I was like that is that's that's just it looks like something that's made out of like homemade Play-Doh, not even like store brand Play-Doh, <laughs> but like, you know, like flour and like food coloring. And then he's just kind of like lumpy and sad. And then you just like leave him on the windowsill and he just collects dust forever. And then eventually he gets junked or eaten by a dog. Like that's, that's who he is as a person. And in terms of visuals, ugly man, hideous should regret ever being born there's a great shot though of him bailing out of the moving vehicle which uh very enjoyable some of the the deaths have like this big flare that takes over the screen which the significance is like somewhat convoluted but it's like this big flare and then there's also like a big head and like i guess it could have been pretty striking filmmaking but i think the fact that they edited this to help me yeah it makes me think perhaps it wasn't ever gonna be good i was actually a little creeped out by the shot of Myrna sort of goading the uh, Swami guy into jumping in front of the yeah. uh, oncoming subway train. That was a good shot. That's a little freaky. I was going to say, I think part of the reason why it looks so good visually, it's Leo Tovers, the cinematographer, who then ends up becoming like a two-time Oscar nominee compared to Georges Achimbaid, who is a zero-time <laughs> Academy Award nominee. No, he doesn't have shit. He doesn't have fucking anything. He made the Penguin Pool murder with Edna May Oliver. He should have been nominated for that. That's a really good movie. If you like penguins and murder and Edna May Oliver, which I think everyone does. No, so it's a Leo Tover movie, so it's got that, it's got a, a really kind of sleek visual to it. One of the things that I really enjoy about this movie, in addition to the fact that it's offbeat and it's quirky and it's weird, is that Myrna Loy, even though, again, she is in yellow face, she's doing some yellow face, it's a racist movie, is that by contrasting her against some actresses of the old school, actresses who are very much of the early 20th century Broadway tradition, somebody like Florence Eldridge, actresses more associated with the silent era, like Mary Duncan, you get to see kind of the building blocks, the, the basic essential like crystallization of a sound film personality in early Myrna Loy performances, because it's astonishing to me that they didn't know that she was going to be a star. The fact that Myrna wasn't a star right out the gate is astounding to me when you look on it in retrospect, but she just, she sparkles in a way that none of the other women in this movie do, including Irene Dunn, because she's just such a special, special, special performer. But you also get to see that she has to wait for the movies to mature a little bit because so much of Myrna's brilliance as a performer is in the way she so deftly handles dialogue. And it's kind of, I got to wait for, for the medium to catch up with her, I guess. Yeah, she's definitely much more magnetic than any of the other performers in this film and she quite literally towers over some of them which is ridiculous because she's really not that tall but like I think it's very hard to get <laughs> past the racism aspect of it and also just everything happens really really fast like each of the death it's just like boom 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 and I'm I'm like all these women look kind of the same I don't know who's died was that a different person what's going on 
it can be a little bit hard to follow, um, but I'm sure there was exposition cut out in those 14 <laughs> minutes that could have provided some insight. You also run into that kind of uh, issue that they, they ran into a, a lot in the early 30s and in the late silent era, where the code hasn't come into play quite yet, but there is still kind of a level of restraint going on there with adaptations. And from what I understand, what I've read about 13 women in the novel a lot of it had to be cut. The Peg Entwistle character in particular has a much more complex and like multi-layered story about like what femininity and feminine sexuality mean in the world because she's supposed to be this like a really beautiful character who remains a virgin and then ultimately like ends up falling in love with another woman and then dying in a sanitarium because no man has ever approached her like all these like just crazy early 20th century bullshitty tiffany idiot man interpretations of everything and I think it'd be interesting to see this movie adapted the way it was written, but also we wouldn't do that nowadays because it's such an absurdly racist story. But <laughs> I guess it'd be interesting to see an unexpurgated version of 13 Women. And again, we don't even see two of the women. What happens to them? What's the plot there? You know? I obviously have not read 13 Women or anything by Tiffany Thayer, but one quote I found on his Wikipedia page that I thought was interesting. Dorothy Parker, in a New Yorker review of An American Girl, said, He is beyond question a writer of power, and his power lies in his ability to make sex so thoroughly, graphically, and aggressively unattractive that one is fairly shaken to ponder how little one has been missing. Man, he was the original. My dad wrote a porn. <laughs> yeah. Only Rocky could never be the xenophobic. He couldn't even try. I, wait. <laughs> you missed the weirdest part of his page. It says family. Thea had been married about three times. How are we vague on the facts of that? Well, another another thing about Tiffany Thayer, he was like, well, he founded the Fordian Society. <laughs> so like a cult kind of UFO-y stuff. But he personally didn't believe in UFOs. He thought the atomic bomb was a hoax perpetuated by the US government. Toward the end of his life, it says uh, Thayer had championed increasingly idiosyncratic ideas such as a flat earth so very weird guy oh my god you know i for i forgot about ricardo cortez i forgot that he at one point was married to and at the time of her death estranged from alma rubens that's kind of a big deal Alma Rubens is alongside Wally Reed, one of the more famous examples of somebody whose life ends up being derailed by drug addiction during the silent era. You don't see that terribly often, at least with a major star. Obviously, this is going to happen behind the scenes. But um, so that's interesting. I, I had completely forgotten about that bit of context. And we previously discussed Ricardo Cortez's brother, Stanley Cortez in the episode on uh, Night of the Hunter because he was a cinematographer on that and I implied that I think that he wanted to bone down with Charles Lawton. Dig in there, dig in there, and then Google Charles Lawton and then really think to yourself, of all the people, of all... Look, everyone deserves love. Ah, not if you're going to make that kind of decision. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of... It's the 1950s in Hollywood. Farley Granger's right there. You don't have to, you know, you got options. Charles Lawton should never be one of those options. Anyway, 13 Women, fun movie, um, love seeing some old troopers, kind of, I don't know, I guess reduced to supporting status in which they're in the movie for like 10 seconds. The absolute best uh, supporting role line in this movie is since the baby left us. Yeah. Where is it going? Yeah. Kay Johnson's baby is just, he hit the road, Jack. George has been so wretched since, since the baby left us. 
we were talking tiff and i at the same time both voiced the image of him carrying like a hobo spindle (laughs) on his back you know kind of just got his thumb sticking out that is sad and you know what this is 1932 there are a lot of hitchhiking babies so it's entirely possible we understand what the movie was trying to say but it could also be interpreted in a different way i also just thought in terms of the racial politics in this movie which are of course very bad because you know myrna's white and in yellow face and it's not great but she has a really interesting speech i thought at the end and i mean they immediately sort of uh blow it by having her you know die (laughs) um hurl herself from a train but it is, it's interesting. I was kind of surprised to hear it in a movie like this. What have I done? What has anyone done to make you so inhuman? <laughs> Do I hear the very human white race asking that question? When I was 12 years old, white sailor. You're insane. You're insane. Maybe I am. But do you know what it means to be a half-breed, a half-caste in a world ruled by whites? If you're a male, you're a coolie. And if you're a female, you're, well... The white half of me cried for the courtesy and protection that women like you get. The only way I could free myself was by becoming white. And it was almost in my hands when you, you and your Kappa Society stopped me. You're crazy. What happened here? Six years slaving to get money enough to put me through finishing school, to make the world accept me as white. But you and the others wouldn't let me cross the color line. But we were young. Maybe we were cruel. But you can't use that to justify murder. I can. There's also a a really interesting exchange that she has with one of the women on the train. And for the life of me, I can't remember if it's Kay Johnson. I think she's talking to Kay Johnson. It might be Jill Esmond. One, One of these blonde women earlier in the movie where she's explaining to her like where she knows them from and then the one woman maybe kay johnson maybe jill esmond could be florence eldridge who fucking knows is like um oh well you know we were we were horrible to you as girls blah blah, blah. and she, and she's kind of like she kind of just like bites her lip a little bit and is like you know it's it's okay i guess everybody makes mistakes and then meanwhile there's like that rage boiling in the back of her head and it's a really interesting moment to me because it's played in I don't I don't know. It, maybe this is just looking at it from the vantage point of of the future, but it it's a genuinely emotionally affecting moment and um that I feel a great deal of sympathy for that character. And I don't know how that really would have played in 1932, though. So maybe I'm giving Mr. Tiffany Thayer too much credit because he also wrote Call Her Savage. Like, it's kind of like accidental insight that he definitely would not have had considering he was very liberal with the use of the word half-breed. Yeah, so I feel like he doesn't deserve any credit for it, so I'm not going to give him any. I think that that might be Myrna. Not that Myrna is on much of a high horse, considering that, again, she is the one who's in yellow face, but I think that that might be a little bit of Myrna peeking And it's not the only time that she does it. No, I mean, Myrna was a go-to actress for yellow face early in her career because her features were quote-unquote ethnically ambiguous enough to cast her in Asian roles, that is, in Asian-Eurasian roles, that is a a big part of her career prior to her really breaking out in Screwball around 1934. 
Um, she's even in blackface uh, at least once. She's in blackface, I know, in The Jazz Singer. And then she also, she does brownface. She plays a Romani girl in Storm something. The Storm? Storm? Anyway, whatever. It's very much like a, a stereotypical performance, but she's in brownface in that. So two thumbs down. Oh, this is a, a part of filmmaking in Hollywood that is going to ebb once the introduction, once the code is introduced, because the code has a specific provision about work that might incite any form of racial hatred. And so that was largely interpreted by filmmakers as taking anything that might be like even broadly alluding to dissatisfaction or tension between races and particularly on the part of people of color to be a total no-go. And that's when the depictions that you have of people of color in these films outside of the context of, I guess, more kind of propaganda-y World War II stuff when it comes to the Japanese in particular, most of the time people are going to be depicted as being very docile and non-threatening and kind of a fictitious, it's a small world style attitude towards race relations that comes across as being very racial harmony oriented. And this was mostly a box office concern <laughs> because obviously it doesn't extend both ways since movies are going to be recut for Southern audiences to remove, for example, Black characters that white Southern audiences might find a little too uh, independent, you know, or or overreaching their status. You, so I don't think you'd have a, a character like this who expresses any sort of mistrust of white people and can articulate racism and its emotional impact on people. That's not going to be something that's going to happen again in film for a very long time. Yeah, I think that's what stood out to me in that final speech she gives was the fact that it tackled verbally these issues at all is very unexpected in, you know, a, a studio era movie for me personally. So even when you have a movie that is explicitly about race, like Juarez uh, from 1939 with Paul Muni and Betty Davis, there's really like kind of very much skirts the issue uh, of race in a way that comes across as being a little disingenuous, perhaps. it's uh, You definitely kind of get this weird way of like conflating like race with nationality and so in a lot of movies that are going to emerge after the code race is only going to be approached within that kind of broader like global context because again like i said earlier world war ii makes it possible to hate the japanese and that is a viewpoint that now can be endorsed in film whereas previously it might have been you might have to curb you know sort of anti-japanese sentiment because of the domestic japanese american market these studio heads are very concerned about box office so i don't know this is kind of a weirdly con it's it shouldn't be a controversial aspect of the movie in comparison to everything else about this movie that should be controversial, but definitely this would be what at the time would render it impossible to make just a couple of years later. But they should have more lesbian peg and whistle. I think she should have, this should have been a lesbian. I give it nine out of the alleged 13 women who are in this movie, which again, do not add up to, to, to 13. I give it seven trains uh, in the subway out of, out of 10. Purely because it's very interesting to, like, read from both a contemporary context and a modern context. It's quite an interesting conundrum. I'll say six hitchhiking babies out of ten, and I would recommend watching it, checking it out. It's, like we said, only an hour or so. What do you got to lose? Just an hour of your life? You've got heaps of those. Myrna Loy tries to murder a child via a rubber ball filled with dynamite. And then Ricardo Cortez or Irene Dunn or one of the two of them, whatever, interchangeable to me can't tell them apart you know I, you show me Irene Dunn and Ricardo Cortez I don't know which one's which I just see 
two Caucasian people. Um, I don't see race. Thank you. But uh, <laughs> one of them just flings it out the window and then just fucking explodes. And we were watching this and Amelia was like, so did why does everyone have access to dynamite? Because she just picks it up at the hardware store. I think Myrna sends uh, the chauffeur, the one, the guy who, the actor who ended up, you know, hating the commies, just goes to the hardware store and just picks up some fucking, some fucking dynamite. And I'm like, back then, dynamite was all over the place in Los Angeles. It's like how people used to die all the time by falling into um, oil wells. This city was a wild it was was wilderness and that's how you can blow up a baby well honestly the baby really kind of had it coming to him because he was like all of his presents were up on a shelf in his cupboard which was a sick cupboard because it had like a little cutout in when in the yeah, door like of that. the cupboard that was like a little puppy which i thought was very cool kid didn't care though because it was a little f- shit anyway so he climbs to try and get his presents like for his birthday however many hours beforehand, which I said if it was an Ikea dresser, he would have been dead immediately. Um, <laughs> but he he does that and then everything falls down except the TNT ball. So, like, when they first introduced the concept of the ball, I, I initially thought, oh, they're just going to give him a ball and he's going to play with it in the street and they're going to run him down or something. But no, it was much more Looney Tunes than that. Um, oh, God, this the kid is... Um... <laughs> is garbo's kid in the single standard that's funny because the single standard isn't that isn't the one where garbo's just like yeet i hate being a mom this baby sucks ass yeet and then just gets rid of him i think that's the same movie i mean that would just be garbo in real life yeah okay not untrue he's also in zoo in budapest with loretta young and gene raymond which is a movie that we still haven't seen yet but i need us to because loretta young and gene raymond in a zoo in budapest to me is the perfect idea for a movie. I'm actually mad I didn't come up with it. He's also in Anne Vickers with Irene Dunn, which is funny because I had completely forgotten the fact that in that movie, Walter Houston's character's name is Barney Dolphin. <laughs> what? what? Anne Vickers. Anne Vickers, the movie with Irene Dunn. Uh, Walter Houston plays the love interest. His name is Judge Barney. Barney. Like Barney. Dolphin, as in, you know, porpoise noise put in a porpoise noise todd why not a dolphin noise they're different animals oh i didn't know that are they different animals i thought dolphin was a porpoise no different oh yeah porpoises are smaller he's also in grand slam with loretta young and paul lucas wow this kid i'm jealous i'm jealous this kid was in so many loretta young movies he probably got to like smell her and everything he's got an interesting he's credited he's boy uncredited in captain's courageous well there are a number of boys in captain's courageous so that's a little difficult and he's in grapes of wrath oh and he's in laura and he's in gypsy colt he's in he's just a, a newsboy it says he's also in gypsy colt which is francis d's last movie i'm happy for him apparently he had a very normal life he grew up and decided he didn't want to act anymore so good for him that's not sad that's not sad it's a nice change the saddest thing in this movie besides the racism is ricardo cortez i just can't maybe i should specify here that ricardo cortez is not like Ricardo Cortez, like that's a stage name. Ricardo Cortez bought into the popularity of Latin lovers by kind of pretending to be Latin. I think it was more or less uh, an open secret that he was not Latin. I think at one point, though, he claimed to be Austrian. And so he's like, oh, I'm Austrian. That's just not an Austrian name. Well, he was like, I'm an Austrian who's adopted a Spanish name in order to be a Latin lover, but he wasn't even Austrian. He was from like Brooklyn. You know, that doesn't work. So... And also he looked like that. Also he looked like that. No. I just, I'm not, okay, look, no one is allowed to muscle in on Ramon Navarro's territory and live. It doesn't happen. 
I won't allow it. I hate him so much. Yeah, with that, I guess we move on to the lighter side of this episode. Yeah, I don't think we have anybody dying in the next one. Well, I mean, I was dying. <laughs> it's a long movie. <laughs> it was a long movie. Um, staring at Joey Brown for any length of time, let alone for an hour and 15 minutes, should be a crime. I feel like it's a form of torture. I Joey Brown is really interesting to me. I think uh, of... of us well you know amelia's a big fan of like the thelma todd you know early um female two-reeler like lady comedies but i think of, of us i'm probably the one who's maybe most familiar with a lot of these more minor screen comedians who make these kind of shitty hour-long quickie programmers at some of the studios and brown to me is funny because i get it i get it i get it and then i don't get it anymore and i also think he did ultimately find his calling which was trying to get into jack lemon spanks in some like it hot i called mama she was so happy she cried she wants you to have our wedding gown it's white lace yeah that's good i can't get married in your mother's dress <laughs> She and I, we are not built the same way. We can have it altered. Yeah, no, you don't. That's good. I'm going to level with you. We can't get married at all. Why not? Well, in the first place, I'm not a natural blonde. Doesn't matter. I smoke. I smoke all the time. I don't care. Well, I have a terrible past. For three years now, I've been living with a saxophone player. I forgive you. I can never have children. We can adopt some. But you don't understand, Osgood. Uh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. But I, I appreciate that he had to make When's Your Birthday or What Day Were You Born or whatever the name of this movie is in order to get to that <laughs> point in his career. So you take the good with the bad. I mean, I feel like he coasted a lot just because his face looked the way that it did, which I understand lots of comics, especially back then, a lot of their comedy did come from their physical appearance. But like just it kind of begins there and then like ends there. And, like he doesn't have like the verbal comedy of like someone like Red Skelton or to an extent Laurel and Hardy or definitely not the Marx Brothers. Like he just, it's all a bit like one note. Yeah, I think me. Brown's an acquired taste. Joey Brown is kind of like, he's in that same pantheon as like Wheeler and Woolsey, Edgar Bergen, some of those 30s guys who I don't know entirely really translated into other eras. Um, I think Amelia would argue that Edgar Bergen doesn't translate in any way, shape or form because this comedy <laughs> is reliant upon a puppet. So, but, you know. Oh, anyway, so this movie is about astrology. It's also about astrology. And Joey Brown plays a man who is a fervent believer in astrology. He is always talking about astrology. He's always talking about people's signs and what the stars hold for them. And then he's boxing in order to finance his, his, his ambitions of being a professional astrologer. He's a Taurus. That's very important. And he is kind of... He wants to pay the tuition to finish his astrology course and become a doctor of astrology. Right. Well, I'd have won if Taurus had been in conjunction. Who's Taurus? Well, that's the planet that rules my destiny. You see? I'm studying astrology. Well, you've seen enough stars tonight. That's why I've been fighting, so I can pick up enough extra money to finish my course. You mean you've been taking all these meetings to study stars? Yeah. And it's been worth it. Tonight's money will make me a DA. District attorney? No. Doc 
doctor of astrology. You're screwy. And the one guy's like, oh, a district attorney? Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And it's like, no, a doctor of astrology. And you're like, wow, it's just (laughs) the same. Except now he'd be on Twitter talking about anti-vaccination and sun tanning your vagina. That's what Joey Brown would be into if he was alive now, I think, in this movie. I don't know about real life Joey Brown. Maybe he wouldn't tell you to suntan your vagina, but the character would. And he is always getting into kind of wacky hijinks and scrapes because his obsession with astrology leads him into various social gaffes. Dustin, darling. Yes. Look at our invitations. Aren't they wonderful? Oh, dear. This is terrible. What do you mean? It says June 1st. Of course, that's the date we agreed on. Yes, I know, but, but I didn't know then what I know now. What is he talking about? You see, I'm a bull. A what? I'm a bull and you're a scorpion. Justin! And your your mother's a crab and your father is a goat. <laughs> the only saving grace of this movie is absolutely the dog um, that he, I guess, adopts. The dog kind of adopts him because he's walking home. Because we... The, the angle to this film that I don't understand is the boxing angle. Because he's like, yeah, fighting to get money to earn his DA, but then... Also, there's a fight at the end, which goes on for an extraordinary long amount of time. Uh, Too long. It's like, why do I need to see all three rounds of this fucking fight? But yeah, he's walking home with a steak on his face, which I'm very glad we've moved past that as a cure for black eyes. And the dog obviously takes interest in in the steak. And then it's just his constant companion from there on in. And he's a great dog. He's called Zodiac. I believe the dog's name was Corky. Best actor in the in the picture. Also, Marion Marsh is in this. Her character's name is Jerry Grant. Uh, and it's Jerry with a hard J, which is, yeah, kind of the reverse Tiffany in this picture. It's like the Spice Girl was Jerry Halliwell, um, but that was with a G and an I. That's Jerry Lewis. That's who you think of. Like, what? Marion Marsh kind of retires from the screen a number of years before Jerry Lewis appears, but you could say... You know, have you ever seen them in a movie together? Nope. Mm-mm. So, mm. Well, I mean, she could have been in When the Clown Cried. We'll never know. <laughs> we'll never know. <laughs> I was going to say, boxing is kind of like the vodka of 30s screenwriting. Um, when you don't know what to mix your plot with, throw in some boxing. If the actor can't box, it's funny. If the actor can box, you know, whatever. If you got John Payne and he can be a boxer, it works. And then if you've got Joey Brown, it works then too. So even though you'd ever look at Joey Brown and think that man can box his way out of anything because he looks like he's about three and a half feet tall. But, you know, I'm not going to stop him from dreaming. I'm not going to shit all over his dreams like Amelia would. Um, Mary Marsh does not appear until half an hour into this movie, which I thought was quite bold. Since at the time, I think, with the exception of Joe E. Brown, she's the biggest star. Bit of a box office asset, I would think. She's second build. Uh, they spend an awful lot of time with Suzanne Karen, who's Diane Bascom, which I just... For one, neither of these women would be attracted to Joey Brown. It's just absolutely inconceivable. Also, Fred Keating is Larry Burke in this movie, who's like, how would you describe him? He runs a astrology, horoscope, esoteric stall that Joey Brown gets a job at. Kind of like the escort agency of astrology. Yeah. yeah. It's a little confusing. But throughout the film, it sounded like they were calling him Larry Bird. <laughs> yes. Which was very distracting. Again, have you ever seen Larry Bird? And, uh, you know, have you, have you just seen the two of them in the same room? The thing is... Fred Keating, he was a magician and we didn't see him do any magic. Maybe Joey Brown pulled a Madonna and was like, no, 
Don't have stage me in my own movie. His biggest trick was uh, where he swallowed needles and pulled them threaded out of his mouth. I would have liked to have seen that in this movie. More than the boxing match. Yeah, the boxing the boxing is a bit dry. Boxing is hard to play funny. I, I think that's also maybe just like a cultural thing. I think boxing was a much bigger deal obviously in the 1930s than it is today and so it is a little snoozy for us but the thing is like when you see someone like buster keaton doing a boxing gag he can pull it off because it's funny because he's innately funny buster can also pull off drag he can pull off breaking his neck on a railroad tie True, yeah well i think it's unfair to compare anyone to buster because buster is the greatest man who's ever lived greater than napoleon wow that was really your comparison that was the first famous man i could think of napoleon bonaparte buster's greater than napoleon bonaparte i think buster never invaded anywhere he just tried his hardest we do see in this movie that uh joey brown cannot pull off drag no why is he shaped like a dorito but frank jenks is still a little into it i think uh, pardon me girly did you see anything of a bus boy around here mais non jusqu'à la parlez-vous français <laughs> oui, oui. we get a frank jenks uh appearance in this one our old friend from the Anne and jean episode who i said in that episode that i would never l- want to see him naked and luckily he's not naked <laughs> in this but yeah he sees joey brown um from the rear and he walks up to joey brown he's basically you know like there's a little exchange then joey brown's like oh i don't speak english he's speaking french he's like eh, bleh, 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 francais i don't speak french you know eh, no no parler anglais and then you know uh frank jenks is like okay sexy what are you doing later you want to go look at me naked and joey brown's like no because you're frank jenks and you're not sexy I think that's what happens. I, I don't really remember. This movie's kind of a blur to me. We literally just watched it. I, it was not good. I was my I was only half processing it. I was waiting for the dog to come back on screen. I was waiting for Corky to pop back up. It was really not good. It has a lot of weird, like, bad attempts at humor that... what What's coming to mind for me is the bit where um, he goes to see Diane and her rich parents and the dog is following him. And Diane's mother sees the dog through the window and screams and says that it's a werewolf. It's a werewolf! That's only Zodiac, Mrs. Bascom. I'll get him. And that is such a bad, stupid gag because it makes no fucking sense. No one would ever think a dog was a werewolf. Like, none of the jokes in this feel earned at all, and it infuriated me a little bit. Also, because the dog could fit inside, like, a bread box. Like, it's a small dog. Uh, Yeah, it's, like, insulting. It's insulting at a certain level. There's no presumption of audience intellect. But again, I guess it goes back to the brilliance of somebody like Billy Wilder that he can see something in Joey Brown and then kind of transmogrify that into one of the great comedians back and forths of all time between brown and jack lemon in some like it hot it's it's very interesting to me he uses brown as a plaything in the same way that you know he ends up using uh gloria swanson you know that willing to take the basic makeup of the performer and then push it further than it's been pushed previously or or farther than it's been pushed in a long time i wish that billy wilder had directed this movie who directed this harry beaumont i don't know who that is so i'm gonna look him up oh our dancing daughters Okay, Bo Brummel. Okay, he made Bo Brummel with with Barrymore. That's something. Okay, between Bo Brummel and Our Dancing Daughters, you know, that's, that's, he made Broadway Melody, Dance Fools Dance, West of Broadway, Faithless, When Ladies Meet, and he worked on the original Brown of Harvard, not the Billy Haynes one, so I guess I can forgive him for that. When's your birthday's interesting in, what was I going to bring up? Oh, it also, it's got, it's also kind of cool, it's got an interesting supporting cast. Um, You get some people who you don't see that often in talkies, uh, or at least you don't 
don't, I guess the average cinephile typically doesn't see that often in talkies, like Bull Montana, who was like a silent screen strongman comedian. He worked with Buster Keaton. He worked with our favorite deadbeat dad, Doug Fairbanks. You also get to see Edgar Kennedy in a larger role than I think you often see him in. Uh, I think everyone will agree with me when I say that his greatest performance is as the lemonade vendor in Duck Soup, who is terrorized by Harbaugh Marks. <laughs> Fucking hell. Mention number three. Put the counter on. Do like a counter sound. There you go. Love me. Love me some foot shit. I've got a really good one for you guys. Okay. So Suzanne Karen, uh, a couple things here. One, she was married to Sidney Blackmer, primarily a stage actor, probably today best remembered for his performance as uh, one of the scary satanic senior citizens in Rosemary's Baby. He's Ruth Gordon's husband in Rosemary's Baby. Um, after he died, she moved to New York City and she ended up moving into an apartment that was rent controlled and she became the subject of a tangled legal battle involving her landlord who had purchased this apartment in Manhattan and the whole building and he attempted to evict her and the other tenants who resided in rent-controlled apartments and this ended up becoming kind of an important legal case regarding say slumlords in new york city uh that landlord is the current president of the united no. states yes suzanne karen effectively took trump to court over violations of rent control and his attempts to manipulate what was like a 90 year old woman by trying to force her out of her home so you know, it all comes back to... Did she win? This horrible... Yes, she did win. And uh, she did not end up dying in the apartment. She ended up dying at, a, I think, an actor's home um, that she'd moved into towards the end of her life. But yes, she did win. She did win the legal battle. So the other people who lived in the apartment building, I guess, were able to still live there. Because she was paying something like $200 a month or something at a time when the other residents in the building who were not rent control were paying like five grand. So uh, obviously she clung to that to the nail uh also we have a reappearance uh, i mentioned this when we were watching this was not be surprised to you guys but marla shelton who plays one of the receptionists at the astrology agency that marion marsh works at was in postal inspector as one of the stewardesses on the airline that uh, Patricia Ellis tries to crash by uh, tempting the gods by singing the song about how we're in heaven now and uh, Marla Shelton ended up becoming a songwriter and she wrote a song for the movie Breakfast in Hollywood which was an adaptation of a Los Angeles based radio show which my grandmother appeared on one time so that's kind of a weird coincidence I think and Marla Shelton was also uh, her father was a member of the Creek Nation so we love to see that we love to see people of color not thriving but surviving in Hollywood I guess in the 1930s I thought that was interesting and i give this movie an f minus yeah it's a zero out of the 12 signs of the zodiac from me dog was good dog was good but not enough to save the picture i think we should clarify our status on astrology um i'm a gemini <laughs> and todd's a capricorn no sagittarius you're sagittarius yes tiff is a sagittarius and amelia's a virgo right yeah yeah i don't believe in it no i also don't believe in it astrology is real <laughs> and the earth is flat uh tell us what you think about astrology um unless you're mad that amelia and tiff don't believe in astrology in which case don't i will however remain a friend um you can email us we have an email address it's basketcast at gmail.com please don't send any pictures of a penis <laughs> Especially if it belongs to Frank Jenks. I don't want to see. <laughs> but yeah, do feel free to send your thoughts and I guess your feelings. Um, but you can also contact us at BasketPod on Instagram and Twitter. Please rate and review us 
wherever you listen to this podcast because it would be a great help. All right, bye. Bye. Sagittarius. He's gonna marry an American like a mother did.